Hey guys, I'm Chris. And I'm Mike. And welcome back to Take Two of No Limits, the Scott Harbath Podcast. How you doing today, Mike? Chris, I usually say I'm alright, but um, all the technical glitches, getting our new equipment up and running, I, I can't say I'm doing too well right in this moment, but let's get going, man. I want to dig into the podcast, and tomorrow's Thanksgiving, or the day after tomorrow, so happy Thanksgiving to you and yours, and uh, glad to be spending the evening with you. Yep, yep. It's like, um, you know, people go out the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, to a bar drink instead i i hop on a pod i'll hop on a zoom and and talk about a, a book with you you know it's, that's my thanksgiving ritual i'm feeling so thankful you know who i'm thankful for the most probably who's that patrons it's got to be the oh, patrons yeah. big time so why don't we give a giveaway in in honor of turkey day in honor of giving thanks let's say thank you to our patrons Let's do it. We even missed a month there. So down the road, we'll do uh, two giveaways in a month. I have a double copies, double autographed copies of a couple of upcoming books we're going to do. But this month, I have one signed copy by Brad Thor of The First Commandment. So let me spin that wheel, pull up our patron names, and thank you to all our patrons for sticking with us. We are so grateful that you can help keep this podcast going. I'm going to spin that wheel. Hey, our newest patron just got his name in, Rod Gregg. Congratulations to you. Rod, we are going to be sending out The First Commandment, autographed copy by Brad Thor. If you have one, we'll pick somebody else. But uh, congratulations, and thanks for being our, our newest patron. Yep, yep. All right, Mike, what are we covering today? Dude, last week, when we covered The First Commandment, part one, up to about chapter 60. I couldn't believe we still had another 60 to go. There's 124. It was a yeah, it was a lot. 124 chapters. And to be honest, I'm, I might say I was underwhelmed, or at least I remember last pod, we signed off saying big things have to happen. We really need things to be pulled together. This ship's really got to get a lot tighter for this book to work. We need to know how the troll and Scott are going to basically come together and kind of ally. We know we're going to see a scene where they meet. We know the president is kind of uh, on bad terms right now, not just with Scott, but the reader. We're, we're a little PO'd. Why is he keeping Scott out of the game? Being a dick. He better have had a really, really good reason. And then on top of that, who is this Mark Shepard character and this journalist? And why is he stooping around in the background down in Charleston and all these things had to come together. And for me, Brad nails it. It absolutely lands. Everything pays off. So many things come together in a really, really enjoyable way and a really smart way. I think this is a clever, clever book uh, from Brad and not to mention the callbacks takedown. One of our favorite things was old characters coming back and boy, does that happen here in a big, big way? Yeah, and I I have to agree. I, I think he really nailed the second half. I, I, I think we were kind of like takedown. We did the, the first half where we, we you know, again, recorded before we had finished the second half. So we go in and blind, right? But we were a little bit more bought into that story right away. It was a little more engaging. This one was a little bit more of a slower burn. You know, Scott's doing a little bit of detective work. He's put on the outside. He's, you know, 
who the hell is targeting his family, his his friends, you know, his former teammates. And yeah, like you said, there was all these loose ends, and I really think Brad nails it. Now, I, I'll be interested. I I don't know if I I really love this book. I don't know if I loved it as much as Takedown, and ho- hopefully that comes out in, in the scorecard. But we'll see. But I will have to say this was this was the second half of this book was really good, and I liked how you know unlike Takedown where we had the callbacks, right? But the, the callbacks didn't necessarily like play into the plot, right? You know, they were just sort of like added in. The drop when oh, yeah. you find out that not only is this guy connected to the second book. But it's it's his, you know, first of all, the troll is the godson of this guy. Oh. And then you're immediately off the racing thing. Wait, so is the troll the handler? Because, you know, there was like this handler dude on the voice. And George kind of does this interesting thing where he kind of plays the handler's voice to be very similar. And in the end, it's we find out it's already shown right from from the path of the assassin. And that that may be the troll and um adara nadal had, had a thing and yeah like just bringing bringing that story and i, I think it kind of elevates path of the assassin a little bit big for me time big time you know we were, we were kind of down on that book probably no it wasn't our least favorite our least favorite definitely was um blowback blowback but it was second it but was second least right it, it now was on our list yeah, exactly but i will have to say knowing that this story that that story hadn't finished and it continues here you know, yep. bringing back meg uh, you know i think also it it sort of finishes meg's arc like right. way better than how it left yes uh, bringing back morel and the fact that oh my god yes. at first i thought morel had turned on him and then yes. you know, in the end there th- there was that connection I, I it elevates path to me it's almost like he had an itch that he didn't like the ending of that and he wanted to fix it almost you know yes and, and it kind of it simmered he Brad sat with it. The reader sat with it. And right when I kind of moved on, wrote all that off, that path was eh, not a great book. Th- this one brings it home. Like it just really brings it home. So I'll agree with you. Path of the assassin, knowing what we know now about Philippe Roussard and his connection to the troll and the uh, Abu Nidal organization and the family, that book and the vineyard scene, the closing action scene of, Path of the Assassin, we were like confused by. Remember, the guy runs in with the grenades. Yeah, he just like runs up. with a grenade and boom. Yeah. They're all gone. And this character, Ari Schoen, who is kind of kind of intriguing. You really actually you wanted to try to figure him out. He was like a puzzle, this old timey Israeli, essentially a data collector and who would run or these organizations. I found him really compelling. And then when he was boom, gone. And then Adara and the Silver Eyes, she was a pretty good villain. And all that just disappeared in this random chaotic scene. And I'm really glad this is closing the loop on that. So, yeah, really good stuff. And in fact, some of that was so important, it made its way into my limerick. There it is. In Egypt, there once were ten plagues. Now the terror hits Harvath in spades. The troll and Abu? Harry Schoen involved too, not to mention all of Scott's babes. All of them. We <laughs> all, all of them. Even Claudia Mueller <laughs> plays a role here. Yeah, you know, like, again, an, another callback. But you know, I don't even think we actually talked to her, right? She was just like sort of referenced in you know Scott's plans. But again, Brad doing Brad things. Uh, you know, he's got a globe trot. 
you know has has a team on standby like uh, what his her husband was like waiting in this hotel room yeah to capture rick morell and team like you just like sort of got that image in, in my mind thinking to the second half of this story it almost reminded me of like i don't know some some sort of serialized movie like mission impossible or james bond where you have a story in a movie and then like you go you know and I guess, you know, we've seen this in as well with Vince where he'll go away from something and then and come back to it. Yeah. And then, you know, that can go one of two ways. He can either fail and, you know, not live up to the first time we saw that villain, um, you know, and actually be, make that villain arc, make that villain's arc worse. Or, you know, in this case, I feel like it, he can nail it and, and actually elevate and make the arc even stronger um, yeah. than when they first appeared. And that happens here for sure. Yeah. Yeah, so right after we left off, boom, Scott comes back to the United States and gets captured by none other than, you know, we get the scene where we don't know the name of the, of this, like, leader, right, of the Omega team. And he's kind of, you know, gruff, not giving any questions. Scott's going to be taken dead or alive, whatever. And then the drop is revealed when, you know, the interrogation happens or, you know, not interrogation, but is you know trying to coax information out of him that boom it's Rick Morrell back in our life this you know they had had a contentious past they sort of made up with it and then you're kind of wondering like is Rick bad not bad but like has he turned on Scott's friendship was that was that friendship only fleeting you know are they back to their old you know sort of contentious ways with each other and I think that that continues through the rest of the story until the very end when you know Rick ultimately drops his weapon and decides to help Scott out right yeah and that's very in character for Rick Morrell, we always, he always was in this gray zone where we were always questioning him and Scott too, but he's kind of worked his way into the good graces, if you will, of the reader where we came to trust him and we came to like him. He does hand Scott the keys for his handcuffs so they can have a, a straight up talk. You know, he's not going to talk to his friend while he's, he's chained up. And he also makes it clear Rutledge gave a kill order if necessary on Scott and Rick Morrell is not going to do that. Rick Morrell is going to let him live, keep him here locked up while the plot unfolds. And Rick is really the reason he's alive because this Omega team was told skill kill Scott Harveth if necessary. Yeah. And I think we're going to see that how Scott being Scott sort of pushes that. And I think, you know, even though he says, and I guess they do end up shooting at Scott later on. You think Rick, after this moment, you know, we're going to get into the bombshell moment of like, understand, we're finally going to understand why Rutledge, you know, why these prisoners were released, why Rutledge did what he did. But do you think after this moment, when Scott did what he did, headbutting him, escaping, that Rick really was going to kill him? Yeah, I, I don't know. After he escaped, maybe. And then in that final action scene, perhaps. I think he's still hesitant in doing it. And he does fill Scott in. So another thing he's doing to show his trust with Scott is he reads him in to the op. He's the one who has the conversation about the first commandment, the title of this book. So maybe we should get there because that's also going to enlighten something I really needed to know, which is why is Rutledge doing what Rutledge is doing? I had a big problem with it in part one. Do you come around? Do you buy this idea of, the first commandment is America does not negotiate with terrorists. How many times has that been repeated? 
But there's always an exception to the rule, Rick says. And the exception here, and Scott agrees, he knows this is the exception, not when children are targeted. And when children are basically used as hostages, there might be some leeway to break that first commandment and you might need to negotiate. What do you think about the school bus plot? Yeah, I think that um, that was probably the weakest part of this novel. If I had to pick nits, you know, almost I had to like suspend my disbelief in terms of understanding why these prisoners prisoners were released. I almost wanted a better excuse. You know, is it true that we actually don't like negotiate with terrorists? Like there are prisoner swaps all the time, right? Like, you know, that's always the line. It's always the line that's bandied about, but I would every president's done it. The situation's right. always different. Right. There was that big one. Remember that big one? It was all over the news where we believe it was in Afghanistan. So uh, to be honest, I think it happens all the time, but I, I think it's the front we have to put on, you know, that, that has to be the policy and we have to say we're going to stand by it. But then, you know, backroom deals are backroom deals. You know, that being that, I, I think that that was probably, if you put that aside and sort of like, you know, all right, there was this kid thing. It was kind of like they, they, they hijacked the school bus. and But how, how did that hijacking not get out? So obviously there was, that brings in this whole reporter story. You know, I kind of just decided to push that out of my mind because the rest of the novel I really enjoyed. And I, I didn't really need any sort of, you know, all right, these terrorists got out for whatever reason. Yeah. I guess that you need some reason why Scott has to be, but I didn't quite understand why Scott has to be on the outside. Like, couldn't he have been read in from the very beginning? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Well, it's a little deeper than that. I I kind of bought this, but I'll agree with you. It, it's somewhere where I had to give a kind of sigh and say, okay, I'm going to just enjoy this here. The, the deal was, the terrorist had hijacked one bus as a proof of concept and the police and the FBI and everyone ended up just saying it was a madman, right? It was a one-off. However, what the terrorists were really telling director Vale and the president was it's not a one-off. Look what we did. We can do this at a moment's notice to any school buses across your entire country. So the terrorists essentially said, give us what we want, or we have in place a network just like that, but to do it across the country. And there is a pretty good quote here which shows why the president's feet were to the fire. And it's kind of crazy. The way this potential attack is being laid out by whoever these terrorists are, because we don't know just yet, this is explained pretty well. And and listen, Chris, for the way chaos could pan out and the president is thinking through the consequences of an attack like this if it went down. And and a lot of this resonates actually with what what we've been through in just the last couple of years here. Yeah, true. I was thinking about that. Yeah. Yeah. He writes, quote, The president had his work cut out for him. He knew there was no way the U.S. could provide continuous protection for every single school bus in the nation. It wasn't just a logistical nightmare. It would also create widespread panic. Citizens would rightly wonder if school buses weren't safe from terrorists. What was? Would movie theaters be safe? Shopping malls? How about public transportation? Should they even keep their kids in school? Should they even be going into work? The specter of terrorism, especially when given weight and legitimacy by the government, had an amazingly corrosive effect on society. 
The president had read the classified reports on the impact of the D.C. sniper shootings and had studied the explanations of how quickly the U.S. economy would suffer if a similar threat was played out nationwide. After the economic ramifications began to unfold, the societal problems would erupt. If law enforcement couldn't bring the perpetrators to justice, citizens would take matters into their own hands. Hate crimes would spike, and groups who felt they were being persecuted would begin to strike back. If the situation was not addressed quickly and effectively, rioting would ensue. In a word, the situation would devolve into anarchy. That right there kind of made me buy that the president's hands are tied here. All right, all right. When you follow it up with that, sure. Oh, and the Scott piece. The Scott piece is they tell the president, we want these five detainees released from Gitmo. And if you go after them at all in any way, we'll renege on the deal and we'll attack the buses. So the president knew Scott wants revenge. If he found out we let these guys go, there's no way he was going to be stopped from going after them. And then once the personal attacks happen on Scott, the president knew he would go after them. And if these five terrorists start disappearing and there's it points to the U.S. reneging on the deal, well, then the buses start getting taken. So I kind of see why you have to sideline Scott there. I, I buy it just enough to stay engaged in the book. Okay. Okay. But is it, is it great? See my, it's not great. It, yeah. I don't know. I guess in the end, I, I came around to it in, in the sense that I, I bought in the second half of this book and I didn't have a problem with it. I, I didn't even think about it really anymore after that. My whole thing is maybe we should have been shown that attack on, you know, instead of having the reporter like trying to investigate this attack that was covered up, maybe if That's I had true. been, you know, and of course, who am I to like rewrite a book after it's been, you know, like adjust the plot or whatever. But maybe if I had been bought it, maybe if I had been led to buy in a little bit more on what their capabilities were, you know, how scary this would, would have been, then I, I could have bought in a little bit more to Rutledge's, you know, his worry, his, his fear, you know. I guess the way that, like, that whole thing was portrayed is that it was this one-off thing where they were able to save the kids, except for the, everyone except for the bus driver. Um, and we saw it through the lens of that reporter, right? And that there was something fishy going on there. So that's where I started, it started to lose me a little bit. But you're right, you know, when, yeah. that makes sense. And, I, you know, both me and you lived, or no, you, you didn't, you, you weren't living here, you were living in New York. But I lived through the D.C. cyber shooting in, in, in the Washington area. So it was crazy. You know, we didn't have recess for however long it was going. People were scared to go to, you know, fill up their gas stations, right? Because they kept on attacking yeah. people when they were at gas stations or when they were at um, parking lots, like Home Depot or, or restaurants, yeah, anywhere. And then everyone was freaking because they had they had planned their attacks perfectly to be around like a white truck, even though they were in, I think, ultimately in like the back of a, like a Cadillac or some sort of sedan, right? But they had planned it so that way. And of course, there's a million white, you know, service trucks, Vans. like yeah, everywhere. Exactly. So, yes. So people were just scared to shitless of service vans. I remember my my mom like being like, if we we were driving and we parked like somewhere where there was where there was a white van, we left. You know, yeah. it was it, yeah. it it gotten in into our minds and into the people's minds. So yeah, I agree that that would go lead us down to that you know sort of scary scenario but you could say that about any you know a nuclear attack a 
a zombie apocalypse would lead all roads lead to that you know like it eventually can lead to that it's true um uh, again i don't have many nits to pick about the second half of this book so if i had to find one of course i have to find one because i'm me and we're (laughs) us so that would be my my biggest gripe and maybe i should nuance it to be i didn't buy I, i wasn't that scared of their attack because i was just told about it in sort of an offhand way and we didn't see it. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, I think you're right. I think showing and that scene. Do you, I think ultimately, sorry, ultimately it's it's a failure of the CIA and the DOD to not track these guys and not to better understand that why do these five guys want to be released? We have to keep a close eye on them. And yeah. then as soon as the attacks start happening on Scott, they have to immediately think that somehow these are connected. You know, if Scott's able to eventually put together the pieces... Right. He could have been brought in earlier, you know, say, all right, we, we, we can't kill these guys because of this, but we need to stop them. You know, like, uh, yeah, I just feel like ultimately Scott would have, if Scott was brought in and allowed, you know, given the full capacity, but, but again, that's, that's not the book we have. So, well, I don't know also because it took the Valhalla guys, Tim Finney and them, it took the troll filling in pieces. So, I, I don't know. I, I would give the government a little credit of that is a lot of intelligence and in putting the pieces together. And the troll is the master at that. So I don't think it's as easy as we could have tracked them easily. I wish we could have, but I bought that Scott needed to use different methods, you know, than the CIA would have been doing to try to find these people. And then again, there's a leak, right? So I think at one point, I don't remember if it was Vale or someone else, but they asked for the odds of this blood transfusion thing or this blood. What was it? A blood. Uh, yeah, blood transfusion. Radio. With yeah, the, but the radioactive, uh, radioactive thing, the isotope yeah. in the blood. And the odds of if it would work or not, if they could track them were like 80-20. So they felt really confident that this would work. And it may have. It's just that the leak let these guys know about the blood. They would have to have a blood transfusion. So is it a bad deal? Yeah, it's a bad deal. And I think it's stated that it's a bad deal. Scott is on record in the book saying this is a bad deal, but he's the one who has to clean up the mess. And I think that right. that propels the storyline enough to keep me in it. And I'll say part of this whole deal that I really, really like, and this comes from a scene which we have to get to, Scott and the troll finally meeting and their showdown in Brazil and then their reliance on one another with the helicopter and the boat. Really cool stuff in Brazil. But anyway, the troll figures out maybe it's not all five of these guys. Maybe it was a smokescreen. And I kind of like that idea that releasing all five guys was really just like shuffling the deck to hide from you what they're really doing, which is springing Philip Roussard. And so I, I kind of like this idea of it was all about him the whole time, but the five terrorists was just a distraction. So that landed for me. And it landed that the troll was the one to deduce that and convince Scott of it. Yeah, so I guess I have two questions before we get to the Brazil scene. One, now that we know, do you think Rutledge was justified in his actions towards Scott? And two, ultimately should Scott have gone to the troll way earlier? 
instead of trying to track down the first two terrorists and then ultimately going to the troll. Yeah, you know, picking up on that second one, it kind of seems like a red herring now. The Mexico stuff and the other guy he kills in Jordan in Amman. Was that just globetrotting for globetrotting's sake that he went after those two guys? There was a one in five chance that was the actual guy. Or was it necessary because the pieces might fit together? I guess he goes to, I mean, you know, Scott's very emotional right now. He's, he, he goes to see his mom, who was just attacked. They're in San Diego. Then he knows the guy takes a boat. He gets the list. He sees that one of them's from Mexico. Mexico's the closest, you know, he even mentions, I only went to him because of proximity. And then yeah. the only reason he went to the next one, because the guy had ties, you know, some sort of ties to, to Scott, I think. Or, that alias. Or, um, the alias, he, yeah, yeah. He used the same alias that the guy in Beirut used in the Beirut attacks that he killed, so he thought it was a revenge plot. Were those red herrings now that I look back at it? Oh, they definitely were, and I think that's maybe why, you know, maybe we should be giving more credit to Shone in terms of how he was the mastermind behind this whole plot, right? That's right. Moving Philippe Roussard, you know, he's like, all right, if you're going to, one, he wants to, bring his grandson back into the fold. But before he can do this, he wants to enact revenge on Scott. So if we're going to do this, we're going to, we're going to play it up. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to allow you, I'm going to facilitate you to do this crazy scheme in the hopes that once you do complete this mission, you'll be able to come back to me. You know, I I gave you everything, et cetera. And I I think that Sean probably saw that, that Scott would be, Maybe that's why the second attack was his mom in Mexico, or you know, like stuff like that. You know, maybe we should be giving more credit to Sean. Yeah, I think you're right, and a lot of questions are coming up. You just made me think, who is the big bad? And it's interesting because the big bad is Ari Shone, but we only find that out in the last ten chapters, maybe less, yeah. five. Yeah. So is that a really successful way to incorporate a big bad? I think so because he has this arc going back three, four books and it connects so well and you don't need a big bad because Philip Broussard is not a big bad in terms of planning, but he's a big bad in terms of the actual assassin, the actual operative carrying it out and they are connected. So yeah, I, I think that ultimately works as like a villain a complex web of villains. And then once they're explained as part of the Abu Nidal family, and then that brings in the troll, I thought that was next level, the way all that was crafted. Yeah, definitely. It it reminds me of like, you know, when we first are introduced to Hank Clark, right? He is the bad, the big bad in the shadows, but the main like villain of that, uh, what would be um, the third option is the professor. You know, right. he's the one on the ground doing the dirty work, you know, the re- who's Mitch, you know, uh, trying to discover and, and, and kill. And here, obviously, it's it's Roussard who's on the ground again doing the dirty work. But there's someone behind him. And I, I think Scott does a great or sorry. I think Brad does a great thing in making us, you know, one, not know who this guy is. And also, I think at one point I was like, wait. But I then I remembered, you know, I kind of had a, I, I had this like dueling thing in my head where I'm like, wait, is, is the troll actually his handler? Is is he ultimately wanting to get revenge on Scott? Is that why he kept the name? Because he, he knows like he's the one actually running them. And I was like, no, he can't be because, you know, him and 
like they have this great friendship going forward in the next couple of novels. So like I, I was at the same time I was trying to suppress like my future knowledge or whatever I can remember, as well as like trying to remember this book and making conspiracy theories, you know, while I go out. And it was it was kind of cool, you know. I I enjoyed it. I buy the troll and Scott's relationship and the way it's building here. I buy that hook, line, and sinker. And so just the other question you asked, and then transitioning to the troll, the president, and can we forgive him, or how do they make up? I don't know. And at the end of this book, to me, that is the biggest lingering question, is when Scott and the president reunite, if they reunite, which we know they do, I don't remember how it goes down, but I don't know what that conversation is going to be like. And I don't know how Scott gets brought back into his good graces or he gets brought back into Scott's good graces. So to me, that's more left open-ended. I don't think it's something to really dig into this book. I think the next book will have to deal with it. But the troll and Scott's relationship here, I don't know if it's because I, I know entirely who the troll and Nicholas becomes, but he is so sympathetic in some ways in a, in a, in a sad way and almost like a, a soul crushing way of how lonely this guy is. But then also in a really endearing way when he says, yeah. my friends call me Nicholas. That was, that packed such a punch because Scott didn't want ha- to have anything to do with him. Scott was actually there probably thinking he's going to kill him still, but then they have sure. to, by the circumstance of this helicopter attack team up, but Scott really hasn't come around to it yet. And then the troll says, let me cook you lunch. Scott's like, no. But it meant so much to the troll. He says, it's not often I get to share a meal or get to cook a meal for somebody. And that the payoff or the depth is there. I don't know about you, but that that pulled at my heartstrings because he's been cooking for his dogs. And it just made me realize when he said, I don't really get to cook very often for anyone else. He's so lonely. He's so isolated, even though he's connected to everyone in the globe. He's connected in a professional business, clandestine data collection operation way, but he's not connected to anybody at the same time. And then he also says he offers Scott a drink at his Brazil house. And Scott obviously is hesitant. He's like, I'm not going to poison you. It's not that often I get to enjoy a drink with somebody. So I'll enjoy drinking by myself because that's what I usually do anyway. Did you feel for the troll? Did you feel for him? Yeah. And I think like, you know, Brad is is building this relationship, building this character uh, arc of, of a friendship. You know, they both like have similar tastes in music, and you know, just th- that whole scene of, it, of him cooking and, and putting on the songs and them having discussions about that. Bootsy Collins, and yeah, and then he, he, we even we we get to learn way more about the troll in this book. You know, the fact that maybe him and Adar and Adal had a thing. You know, like. We are reminded of his backstory again. We we learned that his name is Nicholas because we we didn't know all last book what his name was. It was still right. the troll until halfway, you know, two thirds through this book. And I think and so. I knew it was turning because at the very end, Scott says hi, Nicholas. Yep, yep. And so, you could see that it's budding and that it's growing, and you know, and not only I think they probably share the best action sequence of this novel. Um, Agreed. The the last scene is pretty cool with the cigarette boats, but it's super fast. That's true. But this helicopter scene, which we've been teasing now, like for for I don't know twenty minutes so far, was was really insane. Yeah, and it wasn't just the emotional depth of Scott 
and the troll, it was really good action. Like you mentioned earlier, Hank Clark and the professor, I was really getting third option vibes in this book. You know, I just remember when Mitch had to go through a series of guys and it was one bad guy to the next bad guy to the next bad guy in the third option. And now Scott's doing the same thing, going through these terrorists, one guy to the next. And then this scene gives me a couple of different vibes here. The helicopters obviously make me think term limits with this chopper coming in. And then I also am getting some Memorial Day scenes, you know, a river or a lake with a chopper. And when Scott boards the chopper or comes off the chopper and boards this boat and the river and the, the chopper is hiding behind a bridge, the way the chopper is coming in and this house and this boat that the troll puts out doing circles in the bay to throw them off. And it draws out a few of the guys that Scott can pop in the back as they're they're thinking the troll's getting away on the boat. I don't know, man. This is a really cool action scene. And then it's on fire. There's so much happening. It, it gave me some very Flinian vibes. Did you feel that way? Definitely. Definitely. And, you know, at the very end of this scene where the troll shoots one of the guys with a flare gun. Oh, yeah. Again, that's building on this idea of, wait, why didn't he shoot, uh, you know, Roussard? Is is he still, you know, we're, we're still led to believe that. Is we don't quite know, you know, is the troll good? Is he still is he bad? You know, right. what? So I, I think the writing through that whole scene, this this section of the book, phenomenal. And Agreed. Um, yeah, I definitely got some plenty in bud. Yeah. And this is where the troll spills the beans all about Adara Nadal, and we're wondering, did she survive the blast? And McAuliffe is hunting down these records, these medical records of a private rehabilitation clinic and a, uh, what do you call it? A burn unit. The burn unit and reconstructive surgery unit. And so we're wondering, is that Adara Nadal who survived the blast and path of the assassin? And I'm just going nuts making these connections back to Pat. How would this book be? Because a lot of Brad Thor's books are more standalone than other series. I would say, but this one, you've got to be totally lost. I would feel if you didn't read path of the assassin or don't remember it. I think the second half of this book, while the action's cool, I think it's going to come up, come off as real messy, just way too messy. Where if you have read the books, you recalled path of the assassin, which was probably published what two, three years earlier. If you had that on your mind and recalled it, it's banging. But if you didn't, I could see people being turned off by the second half. And how do you follow that storyline of Adara and Abu and the troll and the godson? And how is Roussard connected to this? Because Roussard essentially is Adara and Nadal's son. The troll, as a friend of Adara, is the godfather. But he's been raised by French parents to get away from and to have a more proper and normal upbringing. And then especially once his parents are gone. Philip Broussard has nobody left and he even tortures the troll. And that dude is nuts. This Roussard character is absolutely nuts. And maybe we should get to his attacks because the 10 plagues and going after Scott personally is still happening. So what do you think about Roussard? And I know your winner from the first half was the 10 plagues and the attacks. Are you satisfied with the next few attacks and how they unfold, particularly this one in Virginia beach? Yeah, no, like uh, this 
Well, first of all, I think like uh, the context around the attacks, I really enjoy. And again, because I think they call some callbacks. You know, we we had obviously, you know, initially we're, we're the cliffhanger from the first book with Tracy and then Scott's mom, and then you know Kate Palmer and another Secret Service agent, and then we have you know the, his his dog that is, it will eventually will be they would say name Bullet at the end, like an attack on his dog as well as the the, the owner and his ski team, and so. I think that only gets built further in 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 the later attacks, especially with this the you know describing the bucket of blood, what it is, you know how it's essentially like a war college museum, like there the rivals uh, museums at war colleges, right? I don't know that I enjoyed like the descriptions around the attacks. I mean, besides like not, not that I'm craving sadistic attacks on people, but I don't know I think it paid off. I I I, I definitely was not as down on it as you were. Um, I was actually, you know, like you said, it was the winner. So I was obviously pretty high on it. And I, w- I would say again, you know, I'm, it's not the winner of the entire book for me, but I, I definitely enjoyed, you know, this, this whole plague plot line. Yeah. I think it's been a little strange, but kind of that funky strange, that sour taste that you still kind of like the, you know, bitter taste that's just on the edge of interesting. Yeah. So I think it's kind of neat. And man, you mentioned the dogs. That's what really gets the troll in a rage wanting to go after Philippe, even though he's his godson, he tortured him, but man, it's a low blow when he puts the dog in the duffel bag and stuffs it with fleas with the old lady. Oh, and that ticks off Gary Lawler. He goes after Gary Lawler's assistant who this old lady was like a second mom to Scott. And I guess fleas is one of the, one of the plagues. And I just thought that was brutal. So yeah, this guy is twisted. And so it makes sense he's related to Adara Nadal. And again, it's paying off because these attacks are so bizarre. Yeah, and I also think that it's it's clever because it obviously ties back into the her whole theme, right? Because she was trying to start this holy war. So she was doing attacks and making them look as if it was the Israelis doing these attacks yes. against Muslims. So here we're bringing in some Judeo-Christian themes with the Ten Plagues, obviously, to make it look like it's not a Muslim doing the attacks, but someone else. So I think in the end, it like makes completely sense why Shon would want his uh, godson to do something like this in, as an homage to like his this woman who he, he reviled. But again, you know, this whole plot of I guess we we when we get to that, we need to talk about Ari Shon's motivation. If you think like that was. Was he just insane by that point? But yeah, you know, what did you think of the bucket of blood? Like the just the description of that bar. We we both looked it up, and I don't think it's a real bar, but it's it's pretty cool. Yeah, couldn't find anything on it, but I think the the idea is there, and I bet I bet you know, knowing how Brad researches these things, it's either an amalgamation of real places, these seal bars in in Coronado or Virginia Beach or wherever their bases are, I I think these bars exist. The ones where they hang out. And and I love the trophies. Yeah, it's like this museum, you said. And Scott, oh, man, remember we talked in the first half how he takes the boots off the terrorist in Mexico? Uh He donates them to the bucket of blood. And so half of the artifacts in the bar are from Scott and his adventures hunting terrorists. So I thought, yeah, really cool touches. Scenes like that totally bring you into the story, make you love what's going on. And I do think, actually, one of my favorite moments was these two cops, these off-duty cops going into the bar, you know, and they notice, hey, 
the owner doesn't often let RVs park here. They stop uh, Philippe and ask, why'd you put your RV there? You know, the owner doesn't like that. And he's like, I was just going to be for a little while. He let me do it. I checked in with him. And this one female officer is really suspicious of him. And she asks a question, you know, using the lingo. I forget exactly what it was, but she asked Philippe like, hey, what's your what's your purge sequence? Purge yeah, what's sequence. your purge sequence about the motorcycle? And he has no idea what she's talking about. And he kind of BSs his way out of it. And she's feeling something's off that he didn't really have a good answer. Like basically any military person or working on cars and knowing motorcycles would be able to answer that. She kind of catches that he stumbles and all this leads her to pick the lock, go into the RV. She finds the bomb, all the fuel uh, canisters and calls it in. So I, I love there's so many times in this book. My heart just ached for Scott and his loved ones and people that are just really good people and good patriots. And I was so bummed when the bucket of blood was about to blow. I was like, no, 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 no. Do not do this to the SEAL community, the med- the military and veteran communities. No, 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 no. It was like, enough is enough. And then boom, this one hero, this off-duty officer, because of her spidey sense, she saves the day. And I, if one attack was going to get stopped, I love Scott's mom. You know, bless you. What's her name? Uh, is it Marion? Is it Maureen? Maureen. It's Maureen. Right, right, right. If there was one attack that we were going to stop, I wanted it to be this one. And I was so glad and relieved that that bomb did not go off. Yeah, so I guess speaking of Scott's loved ones, we kind of already talked about this, but we not get one callback with a lady in Meg. You know, we we already got it earlier in the novel that the president was going to go to Meg's wedding and that Scott got invited, but we get a second callback to his first, very first love interest in this thing, in Claudia Mueller. Yeah. So, I don't know if you want to transition to, obviously they're able to stop the bucket of blood, and then they realize that, all right, that the bucket of blood is the frogs, right? So that that would be the second to last plague. So what is the turning of water to blood? And so Mueller, Claudia actually plays a pretty pivotal role in this, even if it's off off book or, you know, being told. We don't actually physically see her get dialogue from her, but she's able to use the Swiss banking system, figure out all this information, find that the la- every single time there was a deposit placed at a bank or a wire transfer at a bank around the attack, so the next attack is going to be in Wisconsin, boom, it clicks for Scott, the next target's going to be Meg. Or it could be the president or all the above, both. especially... Yeah when thinking about that the first plague is turning water to blood, you know, that's pretty gruesome. We're thinking like a lot of deaths, you know, gotta be to, to, to do that, which eventually the, the, the description of what the attack was going to be, was pretty crazy. Like his, you know, when we get to the very end on the boat, he has his Gatling gun. He's going to pull up right alongside, take out all the guests, maximum damage because there's still people on the shore. He's going to be able to take out people on the shore, take out people in like the yacht club that are like eating dinner Pretty gruesome description of an attack. Dude, that would have been vicious. Claudia saves the day, even if it's just her going into bank records and sharing this info. Scott can rely on her. We did hear about this wedding earlier, the wedding going on in Lake Geneva and how the president likes to go and visit. So he'll be there and he, he's been very fond of Meg Cassidy after she was so heroic. 
we do know the husband to be, the fiance, is a little jealous of Scott. And kind of a douche. Yep, yep, yep. And when Scott shows up, he's got some beef. He actually intercepts the letter that Scott left with her neighbor and presumably, I guess, like a bridesmaid. And that letter didn't make its way to Meg. Instead, it made its way to the fiance and he confronts Scott. Um, Kind of a dick, but I could see where he's coming from. Scott's a little intimidating and. He's shown up or he's he's been brought up in conversation one too many times for this guy's liking. So he's he's a little he's a little jealous, but I could see where it's coming from in some way. The problem is this is getting really close to the attack and Scott's got to figure out a way to stop Philippe from shooting up this boat. Yeah, he has like an electric Gatling gun. He's got it mounted on this boat and he's pulling up to the yacht. And before he gets there. Unfortunately, Scott's been slowed down by Rick Morrell. Really cool little fight scene there in the house and running into the woods. Morrell actually corners Scott before he takes off on this path and is about to commandeer a cigarette boat from this family about to go out, you know, for a evening cruise. And Morrell almost stops him. So I, I kind of like this climax. I don't know if I've been super impressed yet with Brad Thor's like climactic action final set piece, but this has got to be one of the finest. No. Yeah. You know, it's building, you know, we're in Wisconsin and Scott's putting all the pieces together and he's at the house. He's, he's almost there, almost going to get the guy. And then boom, Morell and team show up. They stop him. And then there's that confrontation, right? He hears the gun and then Scott lays it all out for him and he still is not hearing. It. And then finally he says they're targeting Meg. And then, you know, I guess that was the the final straw because Morel, we know that Morel had like kind of a little bit of a crush on her. Also, you know, obviously appreciated all the work that she did and, and help in that previous mission. And so he brought her in. He trained her. Yeah, exactly. So that was like the final straw. And we, we hear he drops his gun and then, all right, what do we do? And Cliffhanger. Then ultimately it leads to this <laughs> just... <laughs> The battling ram of the cigarette boat into like it's funny because when you're reading it, it's described as he's coming up. He takes the what he he hides the gun with a with a tube, right? So then when he gets close, he takes the tube off. Jet skiing then, tubes or water skiing yeah. tubes. And so he says the patrons like are all freaking out, and he thinks they're all freaking out because they see this gun. But in actuality, well, they might be freaking out because of that, but then they start to freak out even more because they see behind them this boat that's just barreling, you know, there's going to be a crash in front of, in front of their boat during a rehearsal dinner. Yeah. You know, th- that was pretty cool. You know, obviously, Scott gets a little bit injured. What I thought was even cooler, though, was the final death of Roussard, where yeah. Scott checks on Rick, goes in the water, finds, you know, a pretty badly beaten um Roussard slices his throat and then was like he's gonna die too quickly f that i'm gonna drown this guy because he needs to pay he needs a like a slower death than what i just gave him you know quickly probably one of the coolest like victim or not victim but a villain kill scenes that, that i've seen in these novels and i loved how it was scott as a frogman i mean the way, imagine seeing this scene, this huge boat accident. 
you know your friend, you just pulled him up onto the beach, is kind of dying. You turn around, you go back in. You're swimming underwater trying to track this villain who you knew flew out of the boat, but you needed to make sure was dead. And he finds him like hanging on off the side of a dock or off of the side of a, a docked boat and sneaks up on him from underwater. I I thought that was really cool because Scott's a seal, man. And I just think that was stealthy and sneaky. Really cool thing. And and I like what you said about the writing right before the boat crash. This was a technique or a device, Scott, again, Brad, used earlier. We do that all the time. Yeah, We do it a lot, man. You'd think we would have gotten it down after, what, 150 episodes of No Limits? But that technique where he, he writes the scene but doesn't tell you exactly what happens. He right. kind of leaves the picture blurry, and, and the second you think about it and it clicks, you know what happens. Like that that when he headbutted him, when the guy in Mexico headbutted Scott and then jumped out a window, got hit by a car. I didn't, I, that you couldn't really tell what happened there. No, you couldn't. Here, the Philip uh, Roussard throws the boat, wants to stop it, and he cuts his engine. But then I think the line is, yet the engine, yet all the patrons on the boat heard the engine getting louder and louder. So it's like, he just cut the engine. Why would the engine be getting be getting louder and louder? And then boom, you learn Scott and Rick's cigarette boat sliced straight through his boat, and it was their engine that was approaching. So I, I like this technique. You're kind of throwing the reader and making them pause and say, wait, what? Oh, because when those action scenes click and you know whose engine it was, it was the other boat's engine. It's kind of fun putting it all together, but it does get you a little lost. So it could also be very frustrating. I feel writing a scene that way. But I like how Brad, Brad typically pays it off in terms of whether or not someone later on is going to explain what happened or, or we're yeah. going to get a piecemeal, you know, whereas I feel like Vince or Kyle a couple times tried this, mm-hmm. but then didn't follow up. It's almost as if they didn't think it needed, you know, it was pretty clear like what what happened and so we just never need to talk about it again i think i think this writing is intentional to be a little bit of vague to leave the reader a little bit more suspenseful have them think about it and then eventually i'll tell them you know instead of just writing exactly what happened you know i'm I'm gonna i'm gonna sort of lead them down this path yeah that makes complete sense but i'm wondering and again Maybe this is a Thorism. It's something we've said before about the early Brad books. Wouldn't you have really liked the book to end there? Maybe not exactly with the cigarette boat scene, but the the denouement or the cleanup was, you know, Rick Morell is saved on the beach. Philippe Broussard is dead. Scott finally gets to talk to Meg and her fiance, and that's it. You kind of close the chapter where they say, thank you for saving our wedding. It's a tragedy, but you know, we appreciate what you did. And Scott and Meg can finally say their goodbyes and, you know, basically agree to go their own ways. Finally, Scott can drop the kind of half jealousy thing. Like I kind of would have liked the book to end in Lake Geneva. I I thought it was so powerful. That scene, it would have been a great closing and you could pick up the next book, drawing the pieces with Ari Schoen and Ari Schoen and Philip Roussard was related to Adara Nadal and, we're still wondering how the troll fits into all this and are the Scott and the troll really on the same page? 
I, I actually I couldn't disagree with you more because at this point we don't know he still thinks it's a darn at all and that's a huge cliffhanger to leave us on and we have Tracy because you know right before he went to Wisconsin it, her parents said that they were going to pull her off life support so he's got oh, to get back right. to her you're right and then so I actually love how he leaves it there is a cliffhanger at the end of this book but it's more so like a relationship cliffhanger. Like we don't know what's next in store for Scott and Nicholas. So that's one cliffhanger. The, the second one, he leaves his DHS credentials and his and his gun or his badger on on the mantle for and is ignoring the president. Gone fishing. And leaves a note saying gone fishing that he knows Lawler is going to find, right? And Lawler, Lawler just what? Takes a swig of his beer and laughs? Like yeah. I, I actually love that scene. So I, I, while it, I think it would be cool, I just think it would be too much to leave all those threads open. Yeah, I guess you're right. I guess you're right. I forgot about Tracy and her parents and her recovery. Yeah, which it sounds like, so she does recover. Yeah, she does. I, and that felt a little rushed too. I agree. I, you're right. You've convinced me. I like the closure. I just thought Lake Geneva was so cool really built up towards an ending. And then we very quickly get, oh, well, Tracy's okay. And maybe she's not 100% okay, but recovered enough to go home with Scott and, and live at Bishop's Gate. And, and now apparently go on vacation wherever they went. I don't know. That was felt a little rushed. And then squeezing in the Ari Shone, getting blown up, you know, in his uh, office back in Jerusalem. I really liked how it happened. <laughs> where Scott gets the rundown from him and he puts the pieces together and everything's filled in for sure, but he doesn't kill him. He's like, the worst thing for you is to live out your days suffering, knowing your family is completely, you know, fucked up. And the troll sitting outside, he's got the kill switch. He blows the place. So I love, and the dogs were in the car. I loved all that stuff. And I did love the final scene with the gone fishing and Gary Lawler looking for him because I am wondering the president tells him, get Scott's ass in here right now. But Scott's gone. He totally turns his back on the president. I loved all those little pieces. They were just rushed at the end. You know, it almost all of that would have made a really great kind of start to a book. I feel like, yeah. uh, you know, all right. I, I really think that would have been a great way to kick off the next book. But yeah, I th I see where you're coming from. Yeah. I don't know. I thought it was a good ending, so. Is there any other things in the book that we we didn't touch on? I guess we we didn't talk about DC, DCI Vale and you know the the, the congressional sauna scene. Um, oh, dude, and it's, like it's the golf. whole. How do we miss that? Yeah, I know. <laughs> and the uh, it ultimately he he has the you know the cojones to kind of sanction almost sanction Scott right like say like I I can't call off the Omega teams but I'm gonna let you go and I'm gonna I'm gonna read you in on some information as well as you know. He blackmails the journalist with child pet pedophilia, um, like photos, right? Put, puts puts a bunch of photos on his on his uh, computer and says, "You need to take back this story." So I'm, I was happy we got a little bit of closure with that, understanding like what's going on. the The congressional country club scene in, in the sauna was funny because I, I I've been to that that place for uh, oh have you really good, oh you had Gonzaga. your high school party there didn't you? Yeah, Gonzaga, yeah. Man, I want to go. You didn't get to play golf, though. That's what I want to do. No, there. no, no, no. I was, I was in high school. Yeah. Although we, I love, I think we did. Um, like the golf team played there, but I wasn't on the golf team. 
Not, oh man, that that's pretty cool. I love if I could go stuff. back in time, I would start playing golf way earlier. Absolutely, hundred percent, hundred percent. Imagine playing competitive from when you're little, like instead of little league soccer, baseball, or whatever. Like you did golf. I mean, I guess it's got to be kind of tough because it's solo and probably pretty demanding on on schedules and travel. But it's, it's going to pay off when you're older. Yeah, it's expensive too. But it, that's another podcast. But yeah, any any podcast. other comments you wanted to say about the book, or you want to just end there? Before we get into the scorecard, there's one other thing which blew my mind. And I've heard I've heard Brad talk about this, but I completely forgot where it was when it came up. Dude, it was a trip. Cotton friggin' Malone. You might have missed it, dude. But for people who know the Steve Berry series, and I still think if you get into the Steve Berry thrillers, it might be one of your favorite all time series. They're so good. They're historical. They're not historical fiction. But they're thrillers, you know, like the little bits and pieces where Brad drops history, like the fossils and blowback and yeah, whatnot. Yeah. Every Steve Berry book has that and leans into it tenfold. Like the plot so is like so a heavy. National treasure type thing. Yeah, dude, it's National Treasure meets The Da Vinci Code meets Brad Thor. It's so good. Uh, I need to check those book out. Steve Berry, okay, dude, it's so good. So Cotton Malone is the main character there. He's a retired uh, Department of Justice special agent. It was like some special ops Department of Justice team. It's all made up, but but really cool. And now he's a retired bookseller in Copenhagen. And there's a phone call when Claudia Mueller is tracking the bank account stuff where they needed somebody to go watch a bank or follow somebody or like track something. And one of the guys goes, oh, no worry, Gary. No worries, Gary. I know a guy or... Whoever he's talking to, maybe Tim Finney. But anyway, one of the guys goes, well, I know somebody. I'll call him up. And they're like, oh, is that that retired bookseller, you know, in Copenhagen who used to work for the DOJ? And he's like, yeah, it's my boy Cotton Malone. I'll have him get on it. So that guy's no Oh, worries. it's Morell. It's Morell. Yes. Yes. Uh, Rick Morell's like, I'll have Cotton Malone follow up on that one because he's right over there in Copenhagen. Dude, next level stuff right there. You know, shout to Brad, shout to Steve Barry, two of the best. And to see each other's characters, that that means the Steve Barry universe, everything that happens there is in the Brad Thor canon, in the Scott That's Harvath cool. universe. To That's think really these cool. two universes are together and that confirms it is unreal. It's just like, to me, it was almost as if Scott Harvath like mentions Mitch Rapp or something like it confirms that the one exists inside the other's universe. Yeah, that's cool. That's like when um, I mean, it's a little bit different because it means there actually exists, but it was kind of it was cool when Jack had um, James Reese like read the this the latest Scott Harvath novel. You know that that was that was pretty funny. Yeah, I agree with you. I I like those nods when they're reading each other's books, I, and I, and that's one thing. But to me, this was a second thing because it was the character, you know? I know. It's, it's almost like you could actually have – maybe they were planning on having like a little short story or something, you know, where they meet up or something. You know, that'd be cool. I think I heard Brad talk about something where he might have done a little charity short story with, with Steve Barry because I know they're close. I think there was some – I think that that relationship did blossom into something fruitful, but I, I don't recall the details. But, man, 
Cotton Malone, Steve Barry, big plug for the Steve Barry series. Maybe one day on this pod. Oh, Cassiopeia Vit, dude, she is such a cool character. So maybe one day we'll get into the Steve Barry books. You you will love them. You know, we need to get David and Simon Schuster to commission a like anthology series of short stories that every single one brings together is is a merging of two authors. You know, a team up of something, you know. Be having like a Haley Chill meets James Reese, you know. Oh my god. you know, Vince, uh, Mitch meets Scott Harvath, you know, dude, you stop know, the, talking. Gr- the gray uh, man meets dude. I can't handle Gabriel, this. Gabriel Lon, you know, something yeah. that would like, wouldn't that be cool? Dude, orgasm on the spot. Stop talking. This is too much for me right here. It's too much. Wait, let's, let's, let's head up the bus. Let's head up the bus. <laughs> give, give, give him our notes. When you said James Reese and Haley chill, I, oh my God, nearly lost my mind. Whew. Get on it, David. No, so that right, was my last shout here. Yeah, let's get into the scorecard. Um, plot and action. Take it away. All right, so I think action's got to take a little bit of a hit here because the first half was pretty light. In the second half, you know, it had some cool scenes, but it wasn't... I, I don't remember this book for the action. I remember it for the plot. I remember it for, you know characters uh the callbacks so i'm I'm gonna give it a seven for action and i'm gonna go nine for plot i, I enjoyed the plot a lot i might even go 9.5 mm, okay okay i i assume a lot of that has to be second half stuff the way things yeah yeah, yeah it's 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 very heavy you know uh focused on the second half because i think it, yeah. it it just comes together you know in the writing and like I really enjoyed the bringing back in Path of the Assassin and almost like elevating that book to make it better, you know, by bringing in the, you know, the, the, the freaking one of the main characters' sons is, you know, in the whole Abu Dundal, like, uh, family is back in the action. Like, I don't know. That was just really cool to me. And I, I liked how it, it all came for full circle. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree with you. I like that too. I don't think I can go as high as 9.5. I'm going to go eight on action. I'd go action a little higher because of the boat stuff, the helicopter stuff in Brazil, the earlier action, maybe a little lacking, you know, Mexico and Jordan again, perhaps a little too much of the, the globe trotting, you know, uh, maybe we're doing too much with too little. So yeah, I'm going to go eight on action plot. I think I'm, I'm only going to keep it at an eight. In the end, I'll agree. The second half, just like Takedown, lights out. I'd be going nines, nine and a half on the second half for sure. But balanced with the slow plot development in the beginning, got to go with an eight and an eight. Oh, you know, one other scene. I might raise this action piece up a little bit. I think I will. I think I'm going nine on action. We didn't even talk about the foosball scene where he tases the guards. We talked about him and Rick Morell a little bit. But there was a really cool drawn-out action scene because Rick Morell got his whole team outside the door. Scott tases him. He notices that the foosball table, they're holding the metal rods that you spin for foosball. So he tases one. It goes through to the other. I, I think I'm going to bump up the action a little bit again because the second half carried so much. So a nine on action, an eight on plot. 
Okay, what about buy-in for you? You know, buy-in is interesting. I had I had some questions here on this podcast. I, I made it sound like there were some parts I wasn't really buying, but at the same time, when I was reading it, you should see my notes for this. Exclamation points all over the place, even all caps. <laughs> A bunch of my notes have all caps. I was just shocked hearing some of these things with Ari Schoen explaining what's going on and when the troll was brought together. So the troll and Scott coming together and all these layers, I'm going to go four and a half on buy-in. It can't be that perfect five because there were parts of it I wanted to check out. Again, with Brad, that's usually towards the beginning, the middle beginning section. So the rest of it was so good. And the reveals, I don't, I, I haven't really had a plot reveal as big as this in the Brad Thor books yet. And so it worked for me four and a half on buy-in. Yeah. I'm, I'm going insane. And, and for all the things you say, and I think like we sort of worked out like what some of the things I didn't buy into today. So I got to dig it a little bit. Can't get a five, but I, like you said, I, I just didn't think about certain things later on. Cause I was so locked in like that. That's how locked in I was. And I was just engaged with the story. So the buy-in's got to be high. Yep. Bad guys, good guys. Tell me what you're thinking about our villains and our and our heroes. So, you know, Shone's an interesting bad guy, and we we kind of mentioned how how good of a big bad can you be if you're only in like the last, you know, your full identity is only revealed in the last chapter. I thought Roussard was a pretty, you know, commendable villain. We didn't get much of his character arc aside from like the trolls' exposition. You know, like we we weren't really inside of his head that much. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe three and a half, four. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, I'm right. Um, between three and a half and four. I liked Ari Shown coming back, but it was kind of backloaded at the end. Didn't leave Philip Broussard much, much room to grow. He came in as a maniacal crazy and executed the plot. But three sounds a little disingenuous because it came together in a pretty cool way. Although there weren't that many other bad guys. I, yeah, I I think I'm going to go three. I think I'm going to have to ding it okay. down to a three. Roussard was good, not great. The Ari Schoen connection was cool, but it all happened at the end very quickly. And the troll wasn't really bad guy. So uh, I'm going to lump the troll in with good guys because I know where it's headed. And I think he was very sympathetic. So the points I take away on bad guys, I'm giving to a perfect five in good guys. For Tim Finney, the Valhalla boys, for Claudia playing her part, even though it's very small, and just the troll, he he was brought into my good graces. I felt for him. A lot of the dialogue he was given got me on his side. So it's not a typical cast of the good guy. Oh, and then Director Vale. We right. didn't go into it too deeply, but the way he gives Scott what he needs to go operate and find these guys the way he gets Shepard to not publish the story, it's shady. But Director Vale, who I was wondering this whole time, can I trust him? Am I supposed to like him? I think I think he solidified his place as one of the good guys. Like Not as much as Gary Lawler, but I like him. So I am going five on the good guys. Yeah, you convinced me. I was going to go four and a half, but I got to go five. You know, the, And the, Rutledge. The trolls, Rutledge is yeah. not included in that list. No, he's not included in this list. The... The Trolls character arc, you know, seeing the beginnings of Scott in a team, you know, what eventually will be the Carlton group, 
working with the Sargasso team and, and Tim Finney and Ron Parker, you know, the callbacks to, to Meg and to Claudia and, you know, he, oh, McAuliffe, right? He calls up McAuliffe again. You know, we, we get our third straight book in a row where he's using the geospatial, uh, you yeah. know, guy to, to, to get it in. And he's, he needs a little bit more than just another date with, with his, you know, Scott to go on another date with his sister, you know. <laughs> he so, loses and, his oh, job, and, though. He loses his the job dogs. for the good guys. Yes. And the dogs. We learn a little bit more about the dogs. They're ultimately good guys. So, yeah, I got I to go Bullet. Bullet for Bullet Bob. I love that little touch. Yeah. All right. The setting. You know, we go a lot of places. We get a light touch. I don't know. I, I want more. Well, more like the uh, maybe I'm just craving lines with a certain description of like every location we go, and I don't know. Maybe, maybe Brad thought that was a little bit too much, but um, I don't know. It's a solid four. I I enjoyed the places we went. I I think we got enough description. The description of Brazil was pretty cool. The description of you know Colorado and like different attacks. I think like you can lump in, you know, just the the, the description of the Virginia Beach bar. Um, the the, the bucket of blood like that that is yeah. a setting right for a scene. So, yeah, it's solid four. You know, I had a four, but the things you just brought up convinced me. The bucket of blood was super cool. Felt like I was there. The ambiance popped. Then Valhalla, the way we're taken to the Sargasso facility and the mining facility turned Intel data center. Not to mention Brazil with the helicopter and the boat on the water. The, the troll's house and island was described so well. And Lake Geneva, I felt like the Lake Geneva scene, even being shorter in terms of length, was one of the best detailed in terms of setting. And it puts you on that lake, on those boats, with the yacht and the country club, not to mention Congressional and the sauna at Congressional Country Club. I went four and a half on this, nearly perfect on setting. Again, I would say the early stuff in Mexico, in Amman, Jordan, we just went there to kind of go there. Could have been tightened up a little bit, I would say. Almost we went too many places, but really good settings on the ones I did like and I was transported to. Just can't give it that perfect five almost because we're doing too much. We're doing a little too much on the traveling heavy, uh, jumping around the, the the globe. But the ones that I liked, I really, really liked. So four and a half. Covers, dude, don't do me like this. Before I go loving these covers why are you dinging some points on the covers what don't you like about them i don't know this whole chess piece one has just got me got me thrown off let, let me let me take a bigger look it's kind of small on my screen let me let me expand them. Dude, let me give them a second a second look this book is a chess game man ah, philip roussard playing chess the is. trolls playing chess tim finney's playing chess the president's trying to play chess and failing director vale is playing chess hardcore I think this book, the chess pieces are a perfect metaphor for this plot in particular. I I thought that okay. was cool. Okay. Okay. So we have two, essentially the A and B covers are classic. What are those? The the flags around the Washington Monument, right? You know, like just classic thriller covers. We've seen them before. They're not bad. Yeah. I kind of like the color schemes. I like, I like the yellow is the third cover, I guess, the, you know, with the sniper scope, I guess that's a nod to the fact that, you know, obviously there's a Juba. target on Scott's back and then also 
Juba, you know, Roussard is, is a sniper. In D, we have a running man. We have we we don't get many running mans with the Brad Thor, but we finally have a running man. Um, there it is. E, we have a guy who's in a sniper snipe in the O. That's actually kind of cool. Um, F, we have the the chess piece, and then G, we have a barbed wire. I guess it's supposed to be Guantanamo Bay. Dude, that's Gitmo. I thought G was pretty dirty. I thought that yeah. was really neat. Not the best actually, layout. The flag at the top is kind of weird, so it's not a great layout, but I think it's bold, whatever country this was. That looks Portuguese, so could be Portugal or Brazil. I thought really cool to put the barbed wire and Gitmo on the cover. Bold move, and I liked it. All right, I'll go I'll go four on covers. I'll go four. You got to go four. You got to go four. I'm going perfect five. Um, wow, okay, okay. These covers are working. It's both the creativity, F and G. The barbed wire on the fence and the chess game, they work on a metaphorical level. So I really, really like them. And then A, B, and C work on a very plain, very classic, what these thrillers, you know, early, mid-2000s thrillers were supposed to be. I think A, B, and C are nearly perfect for your generic Vince Flynn-style thriller cover, like a political espionage type thriller and they fit this plot as well because the sniper with juba none of the classic ones ever really have all that much to do with the exact plot so i'm not going to ding them too hard on not being related to the plot in this case because they're so damn good they're they're three compelling modern thriller covers that just they're classic how much could you see a being a vince flynn book completely Oh, oh for sure I'm almost positive it it looks just like one. So, yeah. So on both the literal, the classic, the literal, and then the figurative, I think it's got all of it going on. E, I got a face problem, man. I told you this before. Who the hell is that guy? Like, yeah. N- no, thank you on the face. And then you thought it was cool the guy standing inside the O on E. That's the I dumbest pose ever. That E, the guy standing in that circle, the letter O. Looks like Nicolas Cage on the cover of National Treasure. You're trying too hard. You're, you're trying way too hard, man. Like, why is that guy posing like that? So E makes no sense to me, but the other one's good enough to carry it to a perfect five. All right. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> it's a face thing, man. You put a face on a thriller cover, I'm done. I don't like it. It's an international one, so we can, uh, it, it, you know, it, it's allowed to like be a non-favorite, and you're still able to give it a perfect score. So it's the German covers, it. man. I feel like the German ones always have the face. They always have the guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not in All right, who's space, your winner, Mike? Usually, who's your free space? <sighs> Hope I'm not stealing it from you. And I'm kind of repeating, recycling from Takedown the other week. I gotta give it to the callbacks, the connections, the callbacks, the the universe expanding the way path of the assassin four, three, four books, whatever it was earlier that I didn't really like now, all of a sudden is on the front of my mind. Perhaps what we thought was maybe one of the most confusing, poorly written action sequences at the end of path of the assassin is now so monumental, so important. And I buy it. I want to relive that scene. I want to go back and read that scene thinking of Abu and Hashim and Ari Shon. And 
I don't know how you pull that off. It's an amazing thing to pull off. Plus the Cotton Malone call out, the Meg Cassidy, the Claudia Mueller callbacks. Loving every minute of that stuff. Five out of five on the callbacks and connections. Expanding the universe. What's okay. yours? Okay. I'm going to give it to Tim Finney and the, and the Sargasso team. Cause yes, sir. One of the coolest descriptions of the setting of how it, you know how it's all set up, the fact that you know they come to the aid of Scott, even in when the president you know revokes, takes money out of their pocket by taking away commissions and 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 contracts, like true friendship. And I like how it shows the beginning of this team idea forming, even if they are not specifically going to be the team, but like the idea of Scott working with a team. So I I really enjoyed yep. that. So that they're my they're my winner of the book and my free space. So that gives me total of a 43.5 not a bad score and gives you a 44 you're we're half point 44 and i think that's right in that it's a few points lower than takedown yes it's a few points better significantly better than blowback but a few points better than state of the union kind of makes me want to throw a few points towards path of the assassin and I don't know, do you feel this a little controversial? It's slightly higher than Lions of Lucerne on our numbers. Um, I don't know how I feel about that, but it's probably right about there. Maybe a little lower than. So I guess the it. problem is we, we need to go back and read. Maybe maybe we'll do like a one-off, like 10-minute pod redoing the, the new scorecard with Lions. Because we, had, we, had we sort of tweaked our, our scorecard in between Lions and Path. Yeah. So. It was originally thirty like, points, thirty points right. when we did lions. So I kind and we of did. We also that. did thirty points on um, path on path. I'm just looking. At, yeah, yeah. We, we I gave path an eighteen point five out of, and you gave it a seventeen point five. So yeah, how about this? What if we do some re ranking, rescoring, and adjustments when we're almost halfway through the series? Because what would we have? Three more books, and then we're halfway through. Yeah. The series, yeah. So this would this would have it like around what both of us gave for State of the Union, which I would agree. Like I enjoyed that book just as much as I enjoyed this one. So not as good as blow as um Takedown. So, yeah, absolutely, good stuff. All right. So next time on this pod, we'll be doing. The Last Patriot. That's the next book for. Uh, we'll do that in December for you. So, read up. If you haven't read that book, go ahead and read it. As always, we need to thank our patrons: our special operator Sherry F, our special agents Daryl, Kevin, George, Matt, Don, Dennis, Peggy, Catherine, Ray, Bridget, Jeff, Mark, and Rod. Congrats to you, Rod, for winning your book. Please subscribe, rate, and review using your favorite podcasting platform. You can find us at thrillerpod.com or on Twitter and Instagram at thrillerpodcast. And as always, that what is taken in blood must be paid in blood. And I need the bump. So why don't you consider the rump to the bump calls, brother? Willingly. Before I do the grab, you cha cha cha.